Well, it being Father's Day, I wanted to speak to you this morning from a text of Scripture that I think will serve not only fathers but mothers well. Not only fathers and mothers as far as their own biological children, but also those of us who have the opportunity and privilege to be an example, a testimony, to be a leader in the lives of spiritual children. God calls us all to be disciples, those who will, by both our word and example, guide the next generation to know how to love and follow the Lord in faithfulness. This is a noble call. It's a calling that is filled with remarkable graces and privileges. It's a call that sanctifies us because there's a great accountability, isn't there? When it comes to functioning as a leader, an example, a teacher. And so the Word of God aids us in this endeavor to make very clear for us uh, what our expectations were. And uh, I was reminded years ago that uh, as a new dad, uh, there are a lot of things I would look forward to teaching my children. Uh, Someone actually gave me a book, and I found it on my shelf this week. It's entitled, 101 Secrets a Good Dad Knows. And I thought, wow, 101 things I have to teach my kids as they grow up. And uh, as I was looking through the table of contents again, I was trying to judge how successful I've been as my kids are teenagers and college students. So um, I don't know that I was very successful in meeting the standards of this author. Here's some examples of what we're called to teach our kids. Number one, how to catch a frog. Anybody done that? All right, some of us. How to fly a kite, how to find the North Star, how to find and fix the leak in a flat bicycle tire, how to change a tire on the car, how to get a cat out of a tree without calling the fire department, how to tie a really fast knot, how to tie a bow tie, yeah, how to throw a baseball, or how to pick out a good puppy, how to pop a wheelie. I won't ask for a show of hands. How to tell time by the stars. How to shoot a free throw. How to make a buddy. How to use a level. How to paddle a canoe. How to dribble a basketball. How to skip a rock. How to read a compass. How to change the oil in a car. And how to build a campfire. Just a few of the 101 things that we're supposed to teach our kids, well, in taking that little test, you can rate yourself how successful you were. But the real responsibility that we have as spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers is that we teach them what God wants to have them taught in our homes and under our care. And so this morning, I want to speak to you really about the expectations that God has to be a spiritual father and to be a spiritual mother. And as I said, it's not just with your biological kids, but it's with those that God entrusts to your care. If you're part of a Bible study and a small group, if you are meeting during the course of the week with uh, younger women and younger men, these are the things that God expects us to teach them. We won't be judged by God as to whether or not we taught our kids how to skip a rock or how to build a campfire. There are practical things we want to entrust to our kids so they're successful and they have good skills in life, but the greatest skill that we can entrust to them is a skill to know and to love God and to leave them with that lasting example. You might sit there and think, 
depending on what season of, of parenting, if you are a parent of biological kids that you're in, boy, um, I wish I'd done better. All of us will look at our experience as parents and realize if we measure ourselves according to uh, the perfect expectations, uh, we fall far short of that. But there's some good news for us. God doesn't call me to be a perfect dad because I can't be a perfect dad. He calls me to be a godly dad. And what a godly dad needs to do is when he fails and falls short, he needs to also model repentance, a willingness to be humble and honest and to seek forgiveness, and to teach our kids the great joy of being restored in relationship with God. So the aim here isn't to make anybody feel guilty or pressure, to meet a standard that really seems unattainable. The call is to be faithful. The call is to be real, authentic in your journey with Christ. As you live your life and walk that journey before your kids, that they see somebody who truly has made their aspiration to make Christ their Lord. Something powerful happens, uh, not only in our examples of failure, where we get to model repentance and restoration, but in giving our kids an example of an authentic, uh, godly person, a, a mother or a father, we also remove from them an excuse that they too cannot follow Christ. They're not perfect. They may be evaluating themselves, seeing themselves falling short or caught up in sin or something that might convince them that they can't achieve the expectations of God, or even, if we were to be honest, the expectations of their parents. But what we can do is provide them an example that removes an excuse from them to fall into discouragement or to despair or to walk away from the Lord, thinking it's not possible to know him, to abide in him, and to follow him. So this is not about you feeling more guilt or more pressure to aspire to be the perfect godly parent or godly discipler. It's an encouragement that in the strength of God, he will not only redeem us, he will strengthen us, he will sustain us. And if your prayer is like mine and what we've heard from James chapter 1 from Harry, the aim is that we endure until the end, that we persevere. And if our kids can learn from us what it means to persevere in knowing God, in loving God and being loved by God, then I trust the Lord will find us having been faithful to that end. And the great news in all of this is it's really not ultimately up to us. You can't force or manipulate your children to be godly people. You can't do it. You can instruct them. You can give them an example. You can pray for them. You can appeal to them. You can do everything you can. But ultimately, God is the one who saves, and God is the one who sanctifies. And they need to find their dependence in him, not their strength or not even your example. They need to discover that God is a God who will meet them, who will gift them all that they request in faith and courage that they might be obedient to him. That's our confidence. So don't spend too much time judging your own perfection in parenting, just point to the perfect father and encourage them to seek him and discover him and to know him and to rest in him. And if we can gift our kids with 
that as an example, then we trust we will be faithful to fulfill even the text that we'll look at this morning. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Paul's writing to Titus, who's entrusted with the responsibility to shepherd the church there on the island of Crete. It's a challenging uh, responsibility because this is a new church plant in a foreign culture, a hostile culture, an ungodly culture, where everything is an assault against the truth. As a matter of fact, those who lived on the island of Crete are known as liars, gluttons. These are those who uh, are living their lives in hostility towards the truth of God. You and I live in a day and age where that's true of our culture as well. And the beautiful thing that we see transpire in the testimony of, of this epistle of Paul is that God will transform lives. He will take a life that discovers the truth and aligns its life with the truth and redeem them from the culture and set them apart. And he does that through the testimony of his word in the context of his church and through his people. And so when we come to the second chapter of Titus, what Paul is saying here is make sure those who are the spiritual fathers and mothers, the patriarchs, the older people, know what their responsibility is to teach and to model godly pursuit in their own lives. Trusting that the next generation then will follow their example. Let's read the text. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We'll find here in our text, very clearly, two key points that I want to focus on this morning. The expectation for spiritual fathers to instruct and to teach the next generation. And second of all, expectations for spiritual mothers to instruct and to teach the next generation. Let's begin in verse 1 by setting the context for these two points. Paul begins by saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He begins by making a contrast, and we can't understand the point of chapter 2 unless we go back and look at the immediate context in chapter 1. Paul's drawing a contrast here between those he's just described, those he's just referenced, and then those who have come to faith in Christ. So let's look at the contrast that he draws. If you go back to verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. 
For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. See, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What's Paul saying? He says you'll encounter people in life, not just the total ungodly, not those who are just uh, opposed to God and make it known. There are those actually who identify as knowing God. And they are going to teach and preach things that are totally inconsistent with the truth. And their lives are going to be lives that validate they don't truly know God because they live a life that is absolutely the opposite of what God instructs us to do, to follow, to to be, as an example. And so Paul's pointing to these individuals and saying these are the ones that pose the greatest threat and risk. You're prepared to go up against the world, but to go up directly against those who are religious who profess to know God and yet live immoral, ungodly, worldly lifestyles. These are a dangerous threat. He says their deeds reveal who their God is, and it's not the true God. The contrast that Paul is making here, he now turns to those who are truly saved. And he says, but as for you, you who do know God, You're to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This is important because what he's just said is there are those who teach false doctrine, who proclaim truths that are not sound, they're just the opposite. And they result in those who live lives that are consistent with those lies. We're reminded of Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 14, where he says this, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. And this salvation trains us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions, and instead to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world. Awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, and to redeem us from all iniquity, and then to purify for himself a people of his own who are what? Zealous for good deeds. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says a similar thought. See, God doesn't just save us, he sanctifies us. He perfects us, he matures us, he grows us, that we might live godly lives. As Harry has been teaching us the book of James, what is the picture of authentic Christianity? Real faith is demonstrated by what? Our lives, our works, our efforts. We don't earn genuine faith. It's an expression and a testimony of genuine faith that is lived out. It's the same truth that Paul's getting at here in Titus chapter 2. And so he says, now to you, begin in your teaching ministry, your ministry of, of spiritual parenting, to speak what is fitting for sound doctrine. This is an imperative. It is a command. 
that we derive from this that we are responsible before God to instruct others in the truth. The point here is that we preach what is faithful, what is true, what is accurate. He says here that our responsibility will have great effect. And I want you to look down quickly to see what this leads to in the life of our spiritual children. He says, if you live this kind of life and proclaim this kind of truth, and it influences the next generation, they will live lives, at the end of verse 5, that has this effect, that the word of God will not be dishonored. See, when we live this way, and our children live this way, what we do is we give the world a rationale that proves God can transform a life through the work of the gospel. He can save and sanctify. And so the word of God, the promises of God's word, will not be dishonored. They'll be affirmed. He goes on in verse 8 to say that not only if we preach and teach this way and live this way, we will put the opponent, the enemy, Satan, to shame. He can bring no accusation against us. And then he says in verse 10, if we teach this and live this, that we will adorn the very doctrine of God, our Savior. The word adorn here is a wonderful word in the Greek. What it actually means uh, or was used in, in the ancient world to describe taking a gemstone that had been polished and cut and created multiple facets that put the beauty of that gem on display to its ultimate advantage. And so what Paul's saying here is that what we teach and the way we live allows us to illustrate in our lives the facets of godliness that put him and his beauty on display. What a wonderful calling for us. Our lives adorn the truth. This is what he calls us to. As we look at the instruction to preach and teach what is true and sound and consistent with the revelation of of God's word, we also know that it will not only have these effects, but if you look down at chapter 11, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, this is what God has promised to do through the work of salvation. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, again, zealous for good deeds. What a beautiful testimony that is that the expectation of Christ in salvation is that we will come to put him on display. Do you want to live a life like this? Not just before your church family, but before your own children, before those who know you best, so that you might put on display the beauty of Christ. This is a wonderful, wonderful calling for us. Well, Paul says 
what is fitting or in accord with sound doctrine. I want to just talk a little bit about that word fitting. To instruct what is consistent with or in accord with means to teach what is accurate and faithful to God's instructions. There's a lot of people who try to instruct their kids in godliness and obedience. I grew up in a very uh, legalistic church context. There's what the Bible said, and then there's what the church said. And that was a long list of things to do and not to do. And frankly, it felt like a great burden. And the motivation for that obedience was often out of guilt or fear, what others would think. Some of us might be tempted to set those kinds of expectations on our children or our spiritual children. To meet standards that are even extra-biblical because they're really preferences. And what we need to be faithful to do, sound doctrine, or what's in accord with sound doctrine, is teach what God's Word says, not more, but not less. And whether it's legalism or it's the extreme of that, you can do anything that you want to do because you're secure in the grace of God and pursue the world and not take any consideration for your life or any other variation of that, we will have failed if we don't teach or speak in what is in accord with biblical truth. And so evaluate what your standards are and your expectations are and even your instructions are, to make sure they're only in accord with or fitting with biblical principles. Let the Word of God be the authority. And so what I want to focus on now are these clear expectations for spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. There's a lot to be said. There's instruction given here as to what we're to tell younger men and younger women. But... Paul says here that if we're going to truly instruct, not only do we proclaim or teach or speak, he says we are to live biblical doctrine. We are to live out spiritual truths. And so for the first point here, we want to look at the expectations for spiritual fathers to instruct and to teach their children. We read in verse 2, older men are to be what? Temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Here here Paul is saying, acknowledge those that God has redeemed and are further on in their journey. They are recognized as being older in the context of the body. These are those who should rise to the expectations of the qualifications for spiritual leaders. And he gives us several things that we need to make sure that we practice as we preach. The first, of course, here is to be temperate or to be sound or sober-minded is what the term means. This word actually describes being free from the influence of intoxicants. And it's translated here temperate. In other texts, it's translated being moderate in all areas, such as appearance, finances, attitude, and so forth. Instead of their thinking being governed like one who has no control over their reasoning because of alcohol, they are instead to model being disciplined thinkers. 
So it's not just don't be drunk. His point is don't live your life like someone who doesn't have control over their mind. It's not just the influence of alcohol. It might be other influences in your life. We are to be sober-minded. Paul says it this way in other texts, Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things that are above. Or in Romans chapter 8, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, prepare your mind for action. I think a good example of this will be found in the book of Ephesians, if you want to look with me over there at chapter 4. Paul writes this, finally, brethren, in verse 8, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Men, are we sober-minded? What informs our thinking? Are they the values of this world? Are they the influences of entertainment? Are they the opinions of men? Do we anchor our minds in the truth of God's word? Do we have the ability to discern our own thoughts, whether they're consistent with God's principles, or are they more in line with the world? And if we don't pursue being sober-minded, how can we live in a sober fashion or meaning that we live in a, a way that is, is consistent with the testimony of Christ? See, a lot of us living in this world mix in a little bit of the world's values with a little bit of Christ's values. And we have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's hard. When you go to work every day from 9 to 5 or 8 to 5 or today 7 to 7 or whatever it is, you're working in a context that's informed by a worldview that's hostile to biblical principles. And that's going to wash over your mind. You add to that the exposure to media and technology and everything else, it's going to wash over your mind. The battle is for the mind. The battle is for my mind, your mind. And if our mind isn't governed by the truth, it will inform our actions one way or the other. We will live consistently with what we believe. And so the battle for us, by way of not just speaking the truth, but living the truth, is to make sure that we are sober-minded, that we are men of discernment, that we can see very clearly and think very clearly as to how we're to conduct ourselves and then act in accord. And so Paul's saying here, older men, listen, you're not going to fulfill the expectations of being a spiritual father if you do not think in a sober-minded fashion. He goes on to say, not only are you to be sober-minded, but you're to be dignified. Dignified. It's not a word we use very often, is it? The meaning of the word here is actually a reference to a gravestone. And the idea here is whatever marks a gravestone is to be a testimony to that person's life. Who they were and what they stood for. 
The words etched on a tombstone are often a memorial or a testament to what defined that person's life. And here what Paul's saying is, in like manner, our lives are to be a living testament to the person of Christ. What's etched on our lives is the dignity of Christ etched on our life. Is that what people see when they see our good deeds or they see our behavior or actions? Oh, we can talk about Christ. We can debate theology about the person of Christ. We can sing songs about Christ. But the real question is, do we live Christ? Do people see him in us? This is what Paul is saying here when he says live a dignified life, bearing testimony to Christ. Can we say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ? The good news is, this is God's intention, to grow us and to shape us into the image of Christ. So yes, the answer can be yes. Don't be discouraged. Set your hope in the promises of God. But make sure, very clear in your mind, what the expectations are to be a spiritual father. And that is to be a testimony, a dignified testimony to Christ. He goes on, thirdly, to say not only are we be temperate, sober thinkers, not only are we to be dignified, but we're to be sensible. This word could be translated self-controlled. And this is a challenge for us. In our flesh and in a world that tells us anything that we long for, and, and we live in the constant barrage of, of a marketing assault that tells us we deserve anything and everything we can lust after. Paul knows this. It's no different than the ancient world. We have to learn to live in this world and before our children in a self-controlled fashion, a sensible fashion, practicing self-restraint, governing all passions and desires. We don't give ourselves over to these things. As Paul says so clearly in Galatians, we can either walk in the flesh or we can walk according to the Spirit. And if we walk in, accord, in accordance with the Spirit, it will bear spiritual fruit. And again, we can have hope and confidence that God will accomplish this. Paul tells us clearly in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then we are able to present our bodies as living sacrifices. If you will, self-controlled, sensible, sacrifices of worship. This is a life which has learned and practices discernment, the ability to see through what is good and true, and then aligns its goals and priorities and ambitions with these values. We cannot do it in our own strength. We do this in the strength of the Spirit, governed by the teaching of God's Word. Well, Paul goes on to say, not only are we to be sound thinkers, temperate, dignified, sensible, but we're to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in perseverance. And let's just talk briefly about these three aspects of faith. Faith is that God is who he says he is. We're men who are characterized by confidence and conviction that God is God. And what he proclaims is true. 
and he'll be faithful to accomplish what he promises. We are not wavering. Again, let's go back to James chapter 1. What did we learn? There are two kinds of men. Those who ask for wisdom, but they waver. They're not truly committed. Their faith is diminished. They rely more on human effort or or some other means than God alone. What James is getting at and what Paul's saying here is a person, a man who's a spiritual father is a man who has come to the place that he understands a life of faith. He does not waver. He is not confused. He's not drawn away by other suggestions about the character of God. He is sure. And so he does not waver. And therefore, he is sound, consistent in his life of faith in God. Secondly, he says he's sound and consistent in his love for others. There's much that can be said about loving others. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this text, says this, These are spiritual men who have learned to love when their love is not deserved. To love when their love is rejected. These are those who love in expression by forgiving and serving others in humility. And his point here, and he goes on to make, what is our example? It's just the example of our Lord, who loved when it was undeserved, who loved when it was not reciprocated and even rejected, who was willing to lovingly forgive and to serve when it was presumed upon and taken for granted. You're going to feel that way certain days as a spiritual father. Will you persevere like Christ does on our behalf and to be sound in love? He goes on then to say that we need to be sound in steadfastness. The word here is the word for perseverance. We see that in our text. To endure through hardship. Learn to accept disappointment because it will come. To be content in all circumstances. Gracious when there's loss. Gracious in sickness and loneliness. Yet never losing heart. Brothers, what our spiritual children and our biological children need to see in us are dads that are sound in faith, confident in who God is. We are sound in our practice of love. And we are steadfast through every circumstance of life. We can gift our children that in the strength of the Lord. Well, Paul doesn't discriminate here just with the men. He turns his attention then to the women. And let's look quickly at what he says to spiritual mothers. What are his expectations for them? Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Let's just focus on those four aspects. What does it mean to be reverent in behavior, ladies? The word in Greek shares the same root as the word for being priest-like. Now, you may have thought of your role as a mom as like being a priest. But the idea of being a priest is your person who's set apart, 
dedicated to the service of God. And you serve those that come to you who to seek to know God, to be encouraged in their walk with God, to be instructed in how to have their sins forgiven, and to experience that restoration with God. This is what it means to be reverent, is to fulfill your calling to such a noble role. And the idea here is, it's not just a role and position. We know that there were times that the priests in the Old Testament abused their role. Their role became more about power and manipulation and control over the people. And any mom who loves Christ and loves her kids understands that there may be no greater role of a servant than a mom. That's true of a spiritual mother, biological or spiritual children. To be reverent in behavior. He goes on to say then, if you're going to teach them to be reverent, of course you have to live this way, a holy life, but don't be slanderers then. And this is a a warning to women to have self-control in their speech. He says, don't be a slanderer. This means refuse to listen to or propagate malicious gossip. And specifically in this context, things that are said about others that are untrue or lies. Do not be guilty of repeating an untruth about somebody else. Why is this important in a spiritual context? There's a lot of reasons. If we profess truth, we need to speak truth, first of all. But what we're tempted to do sometimes in the context of gossip about others, and even believers, and sometimes even our own children, is we will share things in such a way that's really more of a complaint or something that is driven by our own pride or whatever the motivation might be. And in doing so, We give others a picture of somebody that is not a picture of godliness or or what is true and and beautiful. Now, it could be the case that that person is in sin. But now you've told so many people about their sin under the guise of, of whatever it might be, particularly it being gossip. And then what happens when that person repents? They don't know who you've talked to, but now you have basically represented them to all these people who will not hear about the repentance. You want to be careful. You want to be careful about what you say about others. There is an appropriate way to share a need in the context of genuine prayer. But women and men, we need to be discreet in what we share. Be honest about your motives. If it's just gossip and for the sake of gossip or someone making you feel better or you making yourself feel better by way of comparison to somebody else, don't be guilty of that. If you genuinely are concerned about someone in sin, what does the Bible tell us to do? Galatians 6.1. You go to them. Matthew 18 tells us if you're really concerned and they don't repent, then take somebody with you. And you go together. Take a third person if that's necessary. There is a biblical way to speak about sin and to confront sin. But let none of us be guilty of being slanderers of others' reputation. Let us guard the reputation of others. And the idea here really is to be a truth speaker, to have integrity in our speech, trusted speech, if you will. 
Next, he says, not being slaves to wine. Now, he's already addressed men to be sober-minded, and here he says it this way to women. Recognizing, again, that drunkenness produces the state of being held in control against one's will. And we're not to have anything exercise control over our will except for the truth of God's word. And so we want to be careful, ladies, as to those things that come into our lives that begin to inform our thinking and and exercise us emotionally, exercise us physically, or tempt us then to behave or to act in ways that aren't self-controlled. You should not be impulsive in your speech or actions. You should not be irrational. Or you should not just be emotionally driven. You designed by God are emotional creatures. It's a beautiful thing. But make sure your emotions are governed by truth. And be disciplined. 1 Peter 3 tells us that even a woman living with an unbelieving husband has the opportunity to be a testimony. Not just in what she teaches or speaks to her husband, but the way she lives in submission to him. And it says the way that she will win her husband is if she's a godly woman who is gentle-spirited. Not rash and irrational. And you want to be that way before your children. And lastly, he says, teaching what is good. You know, women are natural teachers. Moms are gifted to instruct their children. Not only are they called to it, it comes by them more naturally sometimes than we as men. And here they're instructed by Paul, to teach their children, their spiritual children, in a way that's consistent, of course, with the truth. We're mindful in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that parents are called to teach their children as they walk in the way. And a mom really has no greater opportunity to instruct their kids than in the daily course of life. Requires sacrifice. As you instruct your kids how to do things in life, both spiritually and practically, you know it takes time, doesn't it? especially those chores and tasks around the house, it's easier for you to do it than for training them to do it, right? And yet you want to teach them how to live a godly life, how to be faithful and responsible and follow your example throughout the day in the course of all that you're responsible for. And so Paul is saying here to Titus, if the next generation is really going to trust the promises of God, You can't just teach them by word. Yes, you need to do that, but you need to provide them an example. And the calling for us as spiritual fathers and mothers is to provide such an example to the next generation. I'm going to close by just reading just a section from John's book. It's entitled, Being a Dad Who Leads. I'm glad it's a short book. But it builds on these principles. Listen to what John says, and we'll wrap up with this. He says, no duty in my life is more important or more sacred than my role as a husband and father. That is where my true character is most accurately seen. And it is the best single gauge of my overall success or failure as a leader and role model. Everything else I do as a pastor, educator, author, or ministry leader would be severely compromised if I failed to lead my own family properly. In fact, this is one of the key tests of whether any man is fit to lead the church. Conversely, if a man cultivates grace, godliness, and the mind of Christ in his home life, the fruit of the Spirit will naturally be seen in abundance throughout every facet of his life. 
his performance in the workplace, all his relationships, and his conduct in the world. Listen to this. Furthermore, because home is where a person's true temperament is most clearly on display, no one knows the real character of a man better than his own children. They see with a keener clarity than most dads realize. If a man's public persona is merely a hypocritical veneer that disappears in the privacy of the home, the kids will be the first to see that. Indeed, it's hard to imagine anything more destructive to a child's moral and spiritual development. An ungodly, hypocritical, or indifferent dad is not only a constant, full-time negative role model, his influence also breeds cynicism, unbelief, discouragement, resentment, and a whole new generation of hypocrisy in his own children. On the positive side, however, no one can have a more potent or longer-lasting influence for good in a child's life than a spiritually strong father. Bringing our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is not only a duty, it is also a great privilege. For a wise son makes a father glad. There is no greater joy in life than to see one's own children walking in the truth. In other words, nothing is more worthy investment of any father's time and energy than this. Be a godly leader in your own home. The returns you will reap include eternal riches of inestimable value. And the earthly rewards alone are sweeter and more valuable than any amount of material wealth. I know that those words are true. As I said when we begin, our children will see us not as perfect, but hopefully authentic in our pursuit of Christ. Today may be a day you need to go home and ask your kids forgiveness. You may need to evaluate Do I live consistent with what I teach? Where are those areas that I can grow in? Have a conversation with your spouse. How can we aspire to have integrity in our examples, a spiritual father and a spiritual mother? And yet, rest your head tonight on the pillow of the confidence and promise that God is the one who saves and sanctifies. And point your biological, point your spiritual children to seek and to know Christ and discover all the joys and all the blessings and the fulfillment and the hope that comes in truly knowing him. This is our aim. And to this aim, God will use us in our generation to pass on the truth to the next. Let's pray. We close this morning, having looked at this text, recognizing our great dependence upon you. And we want to praise and thank you that we do not do this in our own strength. If we were to go to the book of Ephesians, we would be reminded that to accomplish this great task, we would need to be filled with the Spirit. We recognize that you have gifted us with your Spirit. And not only the Spirit of God, you gifted us with your Word, the Word of God. And you'd also have gifted us with counselors and friends who will aid us to this end, the people of God. My prayer this morning is that we would strive together with the common aim to provide for this next generation both instruction but also the example of sound doctrine and faith. We do pray for our children. We pray that those who don't know Christ, that this would be a day of salvation that you would give to them the measure of faith that would draw them unto yourself, that would 
open up their hearts to know Christ in the way that we know him and to experience the joys that come in abiding with him. And we pray that you would hear our many prayers to this end and that you would please answer them to your glory. And until you do, we pray that you would increase our faith and that you would strengthen us in faithfulness. And we ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. Amen.